since I don't have the files for the normal music that you would have, I'm just going to sing a little tune before this starts. A doopa doopa deep do. Okay, let's get into the podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Guys Only Study for October and September because I miss September. Guys, men, same thing. Whatever. Male only, men only, guys only. These are synonyms. All right. So tonight we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 14 and the parables of self-denial. So let me pray and then we will jump right into it. Father, help us to deny ourselves and the wants and desires that come out of our sinful hearts so that we can have clean hearts and a clean conscience before you. By the grace of your Son and the power of your Spirit, amen. All right. So this will be a bit of a short one, but I I hope that the gist of it will be fuel to you in fighting your sin. Um, This little lesson came out. I was asked to do a devotion for work and I was thinking about uh, at our our staff meeting at my job and it came out of the context of uh, around the time to this dates this quite a bit. I had this planned for the guys only study from I think August (laughs) that I had to cancel. Uh, So there it is or or September or early September. I can't remember which one, but it was around the time when the uh, Afghanistan uh, terribleness was happening uh, when the U S military pulled out and Taliban took over and the church I go to has a relationship with some churches in Pakistan. Um, and there are some folks from there who uh, are affected by that. There are people who live in Afghanistan who come to those churches in Pakistan because they live near the border. And so they were all being affected by that. So I was thinking about it a lot and remembered this text and then making use of it in our context. It has a pretty clear use in theirs. And we often use it as if we are in their context. But there's implications that we want to draw from it for where most of us are at. Um, And some people listening to this may be in a persecuted context. And and even if you are, one of the implications of this that that I want to draw our attention to would be of use to to you there. Um, We see that the, the collapse of Christian faith comes from loving one's sin or one's self more than they love God. That's the one-liner for this. The collapse of your faith will come from loving your sin and yourself more than God. So let's look at this text and I want to put it into the context that it's in because it's very interesting how the setup for this goes. So in Luke chapter 14, you have uh, Jesus 
healing on the Sabbath and silencing the lawyers and Pharisees, as it says, the the uh, religious rulers and the Pharisees here, uh, by responding to their argument, by healing someone, and then saying, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Saying that their, their convictions about the Sabbath are both wrong and inconsistent. So they're wrong. That's not how the Sabbath is supposed to be taken. Uh, the way that they're, they don't think that it's lawful for him to heal on the Sabbath. And they're also inconsistent. If something valuable to them was in danger, they would save it. Then he goes into the parable of the wedding feast, wherein there the parable there's many people invited invited to this wedding feast and and he says give uh give up your place of honor to someone else so that when the host comes he may say to you friend move up higher then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted so he's um, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's the He's drawing upon that from the Old Testament here and explaining it with a parable. Then you have the parable of the great banquet, wherein a rich man is inviting everyone uh, to a dinner and he invites uh, a lot of people and there's a bunch that don't come. They make excuses. I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Have me excused. I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Have me excused. I have married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant says, Sir, what you commanded has been done. Still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So again, there is a connection here uh, from the Sabbath healing. He said, you love yourself and your stuff more than you love God. I can demonstrate it by putting yourself and your stuff in danger on the Sabbath and what's in your heart will come out right away. And then he gives parables demonstrating this. And then finally, verse 25 is where we pick up. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So there's a a line of progression here to how the Christian life works. Um, There is renouncement and then announcement and then you make it to the feast. It's kind of how things go. There's a, there's a renouncement of self and sin, and then there's the announcement of the invitation to the wedding feast, to the banquet of the king, and then there is feasting there. So repentance and faith are the renouncement and announcement, and then being at peace with God in the kingdom is the banquet. That's the, the gist of the progression. And what Jesus is telling them here is that renouncement is an essential part you can't just rather not just can't you won't take him up on the announcement you won't take him up on the invitation to his banquet you won't take him up on uh, the invite to his wedding feast if you have not renounced your love of self and sin And I'm including sin as an implication here, because what I want us to notice is that the things that Jesus is listing are not bad things. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, your own life. These are not inherently bad things. These are gifts from God. The mistake that the people in the text are are making is that they are placing these things above God and valuing valuing them more highly than their obedience to God. That's the mistake. That's the error. That's the sin. Uh, If the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, the chief sin of man is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. And that is exactly what these people are doing. They're saying, no, I I have oxen to attend to. I have a wife. I have children. I have money. I have land. I have a life to live. I have these other things, and so I cannot... I've counted up the cost of following Jesus versus living life the way I want to, and living life the way I want to is more valuable to me. It's more valuable. So when Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus, then you have at some level already had to do this. Some of you who are here right now have, as a result of your Obedience to Jesus have experienced great friction within your family as a result of desiring to obey Jesus. You've already had to do this at some level. 
And it's a hard thing to do. But it is pictured here in this text as the hard thing to do. It's costly. You count the cost and you determine that it's of greater value to follow Jesus than it is to have these things in your life. You don't always lose them because of following Jesus. In fact, uh, if, if Job is indicative of anything, you are actually given more. If you lose your temporal and biological mother and father, you gain a thousand fathers and mothers in Christ in the church. You do. If you see things that way, then renouncement is gain. But if you don't, then you might not renounce. You might not follow Jesus where he is calling you to go in strict obedience to him. But the thing that I want to point out to us is that in the context of the discussions that often happen between guys about their sin, particularly in the areas of of things like sexual sin, but also in other things like coveting, greed, envy, anger. It is a hard thing to renounce the things that are goods, inherently good. God isn't here saying it's bad to have a father and mother because everyone has one. He's not saying it's bad to have a wife. It's not bad to have children. It's not bad to have siblings. It's not bad to have your life. But if you think that you're willing to give those things up for Jesus, but you can't give up your sin, that is telling. That is indicative of something. If you are harboring sin in your heart in secret, if you are hanging on to it, if you are loving it, what makes you think that you'll die for Jesus? When push comes to shove. If you think that you would be willing in a persecuted context to die under the sword for the name of Christ, but you won't give up your sin, you are the Pharisees that he was speaking to at the top of the chapter. That's who you are in this text. You're the one who is saying, oh yeah, I, I, I will obey God down to the minutia, down to even giving my life, but hanging on to your sin. Give it up. Renounce it. If you think that you're willing to renounce father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even your own life, in order to follow Jesus, but you will not renounce your sin and do everything that you can to cast it away from you. Whatever whatever that is, whatever that means, whatever it takes, revealing it to people, having uncomfortable, difficult conversations, getting rid of technology in your life, getting over the Self-delusion of, oh, well, I need it for this. I need it for... No, you don't. Or his other kinds of sins. 
anger, pride, envy, greed, covetousness. I'm talking about secret sins. I'm not talking secret sins that you're harboring, that you're giving safe haven in your heart, that you're not seeking to put to death. If you're seeking to put them to death, you're on the road of renouncing them. That's just what you're doing. But if you have not started that, or if you are deluding yourself into thinking that you're obeying Christ because you are doing the minimum effort to deal with it. Ah, well, I got covenant eyes. Or, ah, yeah, I I talked to my pastor one time, but he's never followed up with me, and so I it started happening again, but I haven't followed up with him, and, well, you know, just let it kind of let it go. No. If you love your sin in this manner, then when it actually comes to do the hard things, to play the man, to gird your loins, to renounce for the sake of Christ, do you really think that you're going to do it? And I'm not just drawing this from this text alone. Hebrews chapter 12. After going through and describing the prophets of old who were slaughtered like animals for their faith in Yahweh, the author of Hebrews begins chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Because remember, the book of Hebrews, if you didn't know, was written to a people who are being persecuted. They are on the verge of, of, of being persecuted physically. They haven't yet, so we learn in verse 4, they haven't been persecuted to the point of shedding their blood yet. But they're being tempted to renounce Jesus through social pressure. This is a, this is the main way that, if you're listening to this, that you are experiencing that kind of hostility. Social pressure. Conform. Be nice. If you want to be on the right side of history, you need to renounce your views. If, if, if you want peace within your home, within your family, you need to renounce your views about Jesus. That's what they're experiencing. It's leading to and does eventually lead to physical persecution, but it hasn't gotten there yet. They're being tempted to go back to Judaism specifically. And the author of Hebrews is making a case that, no, there's nothing left there. It would be pointless to go back. And, and so as he's cataloging these other believers who have gone before them, this great cloud of witnesses, he points out that the first thing you must do to run with endurance the race is to lay aside the weight. You can't begin to run after Jesus on, as uh, my old pastor used to say all the time, the, the, the Via Della Rosa in reference to our Luke 14 text, the way of death, the way of the cross. You can't start following him down that road and chasing him at full speed if you are weighed down by your sin. And so the author of Hebrews here is saying, look at the man in front of you, Jesus, and let that compel you to lay aside your sin. 
So what I'm not saying here, so don't hear me wrong, and the, it, your love of Christ is the motivator, which is why I said earlier that it is their love of self and stuff that is keeping them from following Jesus. It's not that they have it. It's not that they own it. It's not that they have family. It's that they love it more than they love God. And so they refuse to lay it aside and chase after Jesus. And that's exactly what he tells them to there. And I think the author of Hebrews is drawing on the Luke 14 text in many ways. The following after him in the way of the cross. Because that's what he references in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. See, if Jesus endured shame, which is exactly what the, the way in which persecution will come upon you, most likely, if you're in a Western country, at least at our present moment, is through shame, not violence. And the Bible recognizes how powerful that is. And it's saying that if, if you are harboring sin in your heart, then shame is a powerful pressure point that will then be like, well, I can have both. I can have cultural acceptance and my sin. That's more valuable. And here it's saying, no, Jesus is worth more than both, far more. He had a joy set before him and he is your joy set before her, before you. So, Chase after him. Lay aside the weight and run the race that is set before you. Not walk, not groan, not stumble and fall, not trip. Run. The only way to run is to, is to put your sin to death. It's clinging to you. The Apostle Paul, in the imagery that he uses in the book of Romans, is as of, of, of a dead man shackled, literally sh- chained to your body. The weight of an actual dead body would weigh you down, wouldn't it? So you have to put it to death. You have to lay it aside so that you can run. If you're struggling in your faith, it's probably because you're harboring sin in your heart. Just a guess. Verse 3 in Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured from, endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus has walked the road before you and you are following after him. And you're struggling at sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Again, that's they, they haven't started bleeding yet over it. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Persecution can come to you, not always, but sometimes. Here we have apostle-inspired writing, uh, not not poorly worded, redaction, uh, spirit-inspired writing of the apostles. There we go. So they can say this fully 
I'm qualifying here so that you don't interpret every persecution you experience as dis- discipline. However, if things are getting hard for you, it might be because you're harboring secret sin and God is disciplining you. He's, he's giving you a situation in which you can glorify him by putting to death your false loves, your idols, casting them off of the high places in your heart that you've set them up on and that you're bowing down to in secret. The pressure of this life can be used by God to rid us of our sin. It can be his disciplinary, loving, fatherly hand that is bringing us to repentance. If you look at your situations like that, and then you examine yourself, and you go, I'm going to deal with this above reproach in a Christian manner, then you're responding rightly. If you groan and complain and whine and grumble against God, now you're just stacking another sin on top of the one you probably already have. God knows our secret sins. There are no secret sins in that light. And he will rid us of them because he loves us. He is the founder of our faith and the perfecter. So enlarge your love for Jesus and it will kill your love for self and sin and stuff. But do not think that you are able and ready to renounce self, relationships, stuff that are genuine goods that God gives you as gifts if you are not ready to renounce your sin. Look to Jesus. Run after him. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. See the joy that is set before you that is far more pleasing to the human heart to be in cleansed communion with their Savior than it is to cherish sin in secret. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time in your word. I pray that you would give us the fervor and vigor to fight our sin and to put it to death. Help us to look to the cross, to look to the path you walked, and to follow you down it. Give us the grace to do so, the faith to trust you that when things are hard, when it seems like we cannot win, that you have won the victory and that you are bringing us to your presence and to your joy everlasting. Amen. All right. Well, thank you all for being here. Let me end this. All right, that's that's all we got. It's over. No no fancy music to to let you know it's done.